This is episode 90 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Hen Fetch, the epic magic inventor. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode number 90. Well, uh, as I write this, um, not as I'm speaking this, but as I wrote this originally, uh, it was only a few hours after I put up episode 89, and I didn't do a lot of fanfare um, for episode 89. In fact, I didn't even post it uh, in the Magic Detective group until um, later in the day. And by then, it had already gotten 54 downloads. Um, and now, uh, again, as I wrote this, I was 12 hours from the original posting, and it had already broken the 100 download mark, which is my test to see if my audience is still out there. And thankfully, you are. And um, and I really, really mean that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I realize I'm breaking the uh, number one rule of podcasting, which is consistency by having these long pauses between episodes. But sometimes, as I've told you, life gets in the way and you can't be avoided. But um, thank you again for sticking with me. And um, let's continue with a little bit more news. We um, unfortunately continue to lose friends in the magic world, and recently we lost a friend from the magic history world, uh, Eddie Dawes, or more accurately, Dr. Edwin Dawes. Um, His book, uh, The Great Illusionists, was gifted to me by some dear friends of of the family way back, um, I want to say around... 1980 or the early 80s, and it wasn't my first history book on magic, but it did teach me about the great Lafayette, uh, Matthew Buchinger, and Sir Isaac Fox, among many unique names in that book. Uh, And one thing that made the book kind of unique is uh, The Great Illusionists was it was published for the general public. And I still see copies from time to time that pop up in used bookstores. And it is a, it is a fine book. It was a fine book then, fine book today. Uh, I think my library, actually I know my library would continue to flourish over the years with Eddie Dawes' knowledge. His books, uh, let me see, what do I have of his? I have the Henry Robin Expositor of Science and Magic book. I have the Charles Bertram Court Conjurer book, the Stanley Collins Collector and Iconoclast book. And I know I have, it's not up here, but I know I have the Great Lyle book that he wrote. There does seem to be a few titles that um, somehow slipped by me, and I'll need to pick those up in the coming years whenever possible. I never got to meet Dr. Dawes. I did see him speak, however, at the Yankee Gathering. And honestly, I was in awe. I only saw him once in the hallway, and he was in deep conversation with several other people, so I didn't disturb him. But looking back now, I wish I had. Um, If you can, I would encourage you to read the obituary that Julie Eng wrote on the Magicana website for Eddie Dawes. Um, It's a very, very touching tribute, and... Uh, to see photos of him performing magic was a real treat. In the future, I will do an episode on the life of Edwin Dawes. But for now, we say thank you 
for your contribution to the art of magic, and may you rest in peace. So today, it looks like I'm back on track. Uh, we explore the world of a lesser-known magician, but still someone that left behind a big mark in magic. And we'll ex be exploring the life of Hen Fetch. Hen Fetch is a name you might not be familiar with. In fact, his name is a bit of a mystery. Uh, he was born Roland Howard Fetch on July 9th, 1912. However, he always claimed his name was Henry Nicholas Fetch. And to make matters more confusing, he claimed his birth date to be July 10th rather than July 9th. And he never liked to be called Henry, only Hen. Those minor points aside... We do know that he was born in Baltimore, Maryland. He discovered magic at a fairly early age. A uh, 1942 issue of the Linking Ring magazine reveals that Hen began his interest in magic after seeing Paul Rossini. However, the second source said it was Carl Rossini. What? But a 1952 Linking Ring article written by a personal friend of Hen's mentioned that it was Carl Rossini who first opened Hen's eyes to the world of magic at the Embassy Theater in Baltimore. He goes on to say that Rossini's presentation of the billiard balls, which then changed into a cannonball, was one of the standout things that he still recalled. But it wasn't until 1926, when he joined the local Boy Scout troop, that his life would be forever changed. You see, it was at a Boy Scout meeting where Hen would meet a young Milborn Christopher and a young Bill Thomas. Now, to put that in perspective, imagine that imagine you're a young Carl Sagan, for example, and your new buddies that you just meet are Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking, a powerhouse of scientists. And the same can be said for Phil Thomas, Hen Fetch, and Milborn Christopher, a powerhouse of young magicians. One of the great things about having close friends is also that are magicians is uh, that they would attend shows together. And they did that over and over and over. They saw amazing acts of the time. Thurston, Hardeen, Jack Gwynn, the great La Follette, Fraxen, many more. On some occasions, they even got to participate or even volunteer in the shows. One of the more interesting moments is written up in the biography of Hen Fetch called Fetching Magic by Robert Kirkwood Spencer. In town was another Baltimore native, the great La Follette. He was a popular stage illusionist of the time, and he was performing at the Maryland Theater. The three teenagers at the time, Phil, Mill, and Hen, attended his performances and spent a great deal of time with La Follette backstage. So much time that the doorman thought that the boys were actually part of the show. But the best part is, George La Follette gave the boys their nickname, the Unholy Trio. And he also dubbed them the Little Demons. Another person of influence to the boys was a sometimes Baltimorean, and sometimes he lived in Washington, D.C., but during the time that he wrote for the Baltimore Post, he, of course, lived in Baltimore. This was magic historian Henry Ridgely Evans. Now, if you're going to learn about magic history back in that time period, I can't think of any greater person to spend time with than Henry Ridgely Evans. And by the way, if you'd like to learn more about this prolific writer of magic history books, Henry Ridgely Evans, please check out episode 62 of my podcast. 
Now, we always hear about New York City and Chicago being the big meccas for magic, but truly, Baltimore could hold its own in this area. Baltimore was home to the exclusive Society of Osiris Magicians Club, but in 1925, they founded a magic fraternity for boys named the Pyramid Club. And you'll never guess who the three early charter members were. Yeah, yeah, Phil, Mill, and Hen. The man responsible for this was Ernest Fest Marks. He was a local amateur magician who happened to also have an enormous magic library. He was instrumental in getting the teens to learn the history of the art as well as the philosophies of magic, psychology, and more. Instead of just learning tricks, they were learning why the tricks worked how the tricks were constructed, and where many of them originated. All of this under the watchful eye of someone who could answer their questions and help them, uh, help guide them along. This knowledge certainly didn't go to waste for any of the three individuals, but especially Hen Fetch. Later in 1928, the boys joined forces to create a show called Maryland Mysteries, where each one would do his own individual act at some point in the show, and then later they would do routines together. Around 1929, Hen shows his unique moniker. He went by the Playboy of Magic. Now keep in mind, this is many years before the magazine of the same name, so what exactly did the playboy of magic even mean? Well, a playboy by definition would be a man, generally a rich man, who lives a life chiefly devoted to pleasure. And I can see what he was going for here, but um, I kind of guess it wasn't really the best choice. In fact, I saw a newspaper notice for the playboy of magic, Hen Fetch, performing at a church summer camp. And could two things be more opposite? I don't think so. Also in 1929, Hen Fetch and his friend Phil Thomas enrolled in the Baltimore Polytechnic School. And this, to me, sounds more like wise counsel of his parents, of their parents, um, or at least older friends, to be honest. While in the school, they both tried out for the band and both were accepted. Both Phil Thomas and Hen Fetch were excellent saxophone players. And according to the Fetching Magic biography, Hen even played in a band on the weekends. Now, when the stock market crashed in late 1929, the realities of life hit Baltimore just as it did in the rest of the country. Hen would drop out of the Polytechnic and get a job to help make ends meet at a printing company. About a year and a few months later, he would leave the printing company and take a job at BG&E. That's the Baltimore Gas and Electric Company. His job there seemed a bit mundane, reading meters and gauges, but it's apparently exactly the type of job that Hen wanted because during the downtime, he could work on magic or practice his saxophone. Hen also created safety shows and lectures for his company that he could present for the general public. And these were magic shows with a safety theme, uh, very likely a new concept for its time. He's seen in one publicity photo for BG&E doing tricks with incandescent bulbs, floating them, lighting them without being plugged in, and more. In 1938, Hen got married to Iva Eitner. In 1945, they had a daughter named Nancy Lee. Now, with all this information on his life, you're probably wondering when Hen Fetch stopped it all to become a professional magician. Well, he never did. 
He remained with BG&E his entire life, slowly moving up the ladder, but that didn't stop his magic career from flourishing. He appears to still do shows on occasion, however, the bigger part of his magic career were his creations. He was an avid inventor, creator, innovator of magic tricks. Hen had columns in all the major magazines of the time. He was constantly creating. It kind of reminded me of when I did the research on his friend Milborn Christopher earlier this season on episode 85. Milborn, for a period of years, was in every magic periodical constantly. A month wouldn't go by without some column by Milborn Christopher in some magic magazine. And now it looks like Hen Fetch... Uh, has a similar pattern. A sampling of magic magazines that featured Hen's creations are The Seven Circles um, in, uh, by Walter Gibson, The Jinx Magazine by Theo Anneman, The Sphinx, which at this point in time was done by John Mulholland. Then there was The Linking Ring Magazine, Hugh Guard's Magic Monthly, Genie Magazine, The Bat, uh, The Tops Magazine, and then later when Neil Foster took it over, the new Tops Magazine, Uh, Mum from the Society of American Magicians, Abra, which was a weekly magic magazine that was printed over in England. I've probably missed a couple of magazines along the way, but essentially all the major magic magazines and even some of the minor magic magazines as well, all featured columns by Hen Fetch. Due to his popularity with creating fun magic, he also began to give lectures. In fact, Though he wasn't the first person to do a magic lecture, I I think Di Vernon gets the trophy for that, Hen was one of the first that made lectures that were sponsored by magic clubs a popular thing. His lecture was called Who's Fooling Who? And it contained all the latest creations at the time, things that appeared in his various columns and things that he was holding back. His lectures were very much in demand. He even did a tour of Europe. Now, what kind of person was Henfetch? Well, by all accounts, he was a very jovial person uh, in a perpetual good mood. He was devoted to his job at BG&E, and he was a devoted husband and father. In a letter written by Gene Gordon, the magic dealer, he points out that how every time Hen was up visiting, he would always take a day to go shopping for something for his wife and daughter. And to his friends... You bet he was equally devoted. Phil Thomas and Milborn Christopher and Hen Fetch remained lifelong friends. When Milborn Christopher sold the producer's showcase on the first ever international magic special on TV, he asked his buddy Hen to come along as a consultant. And Phil Thomas was there behind the scenes too. Speaking of the three boys... When they were younger, they went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to see their first ever magic convention. And while they were there, they also had the opportunity to see and meet Gene Gordon, who was performing at a local college. Gene cordially met the young men backstage after his show. And according to Gene, he didn't think he treated the boys any differently than he would have treated anyone else after the show. But Hen Fetch took a liking to Gene because he felt that Gene had gone out of his way to be encouraging and kind to them. And he shared this with him years later when their friendship really began to develop, and it had a profound effect on Gene Gordon. And he made a point always, always, always to be kind and going that extra mile for young folks that were interested in the magical arts. In the 1950s, 
Gene Gordon and Hen Fetch began a partnership of sorts, whereby Hen would supply Gene with new tricks for his buffalo magic shop. Gene was continuously stunned at the creative effects that Hen would bring him. He'd show him how they were made, and together Gene Gordon and Hen Fetch would write the pattern and instructions for his creations. And oh, what creations they were. You might even go so far as to say his creations were epic. And you could, because among some of his effects were things like silk epic, rope epic, mental epic, and more. When I was a kid coming up in magic, I remember three particular Hen Fetch items. First, the Milk Pitcher book by Hen Fetch. Then the Mental Epic, which I received one Christmas. And the last was said to have been by Hen Fetch, and that's Professor's Nightmare. Now, this latter effect has since had two other people making the claim that it was actually their idea. Robert Carver... Uh, was one who called his the unequal ropes. And before him was Paul Young, who claimed it was based upon an idea in Hen Fetch's quadra ropelets routine. Regardless, The Professor's Nightmare, a name chosen by Gene Gordon, is one of the most copied tricks in magic history. I just watched the Encyclopedia of Rope Magic by Daryl on DVD, and the routine known as Daryl's Rope Trick is a combination of several routines. He highly credits George Sands for much of the material in his routine, but when it comes to the sequence where he does The Professor's Nightmare, he just calls it by name, but he gives no originator, unfortunately. I was very curious and hoping he would name who he thought what the originator was. At any rate, the inspiration for The Professor's Nightmare appears to be the routine by Hen Fetch called Quadro Ropelets. For those unfamiliar with that routine, here is the effect. First, three ropes, each of different lengths visibly stretch and shrink to become equal lengths. Step two, one rope is placed into the pocket while the other two visibly and suddenly become one rope. Step three, this one long rope and the shorter rope that was removed from the pocket suddenly become equal in length. Step four, those two ropes are now suddenly seen to be one 10-foot-long rope. That is a killer trick. Let's look at Hen's rope epic. Now, in this effect, you have four pieces of rope, each counted one by one, and then without any tricky knots or cuts, gimmicks, threads, pulls, body loads, etc., they visibly change into one solid length of rope. And I wish I could reveal the method because it's crazy wild and frankly, quite diabolical. It originally sold for $2. And every one of them was handmade by Hen Fetch and his wife, Iva. Within the pages of the Fetching Magic Book by Robert Kirkwood Spencer, are most of Hen Fetch's magic routines. And there are a couple of pages that caught my eye because of their sheer creativity. I mean, the whole thing's filled with creativity, but there were just some that kind of jumped out at me. And one was a page on the popular Doll's House illusion. Speaking of being ripped off, this is probably the most ripped off illusion in history. But 
Hanfetch gives several really unique concepts for theming a doll's house. One, uh, in one example, is to, to tack playing cards all over the surface of the box, on the roof, all over, and then take a giant Queen of Hearts playing card and place it inside the house and shut the doors and then, well, by magic, have the Queen of Hearts, a real person, the Queen of Hearts, appear from the box. There's a very clever seance version of the doll's house, which is virtually identical to a routine that Paul Osborne published in 1984 in one of his Illusion Plans books. Um, In this case, I think it's very likely that both came up with the same idea independently. There was one particular page, and this comes from The Conjurer's Magazine, November 1945, called Hen Fetch's Tips on Chinese Sticks. And I absolutely love this. Basically, there were eight or nine ideas on how to customize a set of Chinese sticks. And typically, the sticks have tassels on the end of the strings. And one suggestion was to put miniature Chinese lanterns on the end of the strings or even tiny tea chests, keeping with the Asian theme. Another suggestion, and this one for Halloween, was attaching miniature skeletons to the end of the string. And, um, well, me thinks that I'll be doing that in the future. I love that idea. Now, I also mentioned uh, Mental Epic. And this came out in 1954, maybe the most popular mentalism prop in the history of magic. And, and who used it? Who used it? Mm, Harlan Tarbell was one. Uh, Orson Welles. Harry Blackstone Jr., Richard Osterlin, Dunninger, to name a few. I recently saw Dunninger's Mental Epic, but that's a story for another time. I can't talk about that right now. Um, Anyway, Mental Epic was another amazing piece of hand-batch magic filled with easy customization that would make you look like a real mind reader. And now you surely know what I'm talking about here, right? Um, But if you don't, let me describe it. So you had a a rather large chalkboard divided into six equal squares, three on the top, three below. The upper ones had kind of a a flap or a cover that was, uh, depending upon who built it, was either permanently attached or uh, could be added. And if it was permanently attached, it was on hinges. So it would just, it would allow you to write something and then cover it over. Um, and then uh, what happens in the routine is uh, the magician or the mentalist comes along and, and has uh, picks three different spectators. And the first one might think of a place, and the, s- the second one might think of a name, and the third one, third one maybe a playing card, that sort of thing. And then as each person thinks of something, the magician writes his prediction down on the upper box and then uh, covers it with the, um, the little flap thing. And then they write down the actual thing the person is thinking. So you do that three different times. And then at the end, you go back and you reveal that, voila, you knew everything. It's uh, just a great, great piece of of mentalism. And again, again, easy to customize. Mental Epic still sold today. That's how popular it is. The modern versions, uh, many of them are made with dry erase boards. This is a feature first introduced by Joe Leffler. I first saw Harry Blackstone Jr. perform this on the John Davidson TV talk show 
back in, uh, when was that? In the 80s, I think. And it blew my mind. And I've never seen one like Harry's before or since. His was bigger than the normal um, mental epic board. And um, my guess is maybe it was a custom piece by Owen's Magic. But at any rate, it was and is today a fine piece of mentalism magic. Now, there are so many effects that Henfetch developed. It's just shocking. Now, I don't think there's many as many as like Max Maven created, who had thousands of magic tricks. But for the time, uh, for the well, the, for the time that Hen was alive, he sure gave it his all. And giving it his all may have been part of the problem. He was known to live life to its fullest, always going all out on everything he did. He was a full-time at BG&E and full-time father and husband, and he was writing columns and lecturing and developing new tricks for Gene Gordon's shop, and frankly, it eventually caught up to him. On December 7th of 1960, Hen had a heart attack. He was rushed to the hospital. He was in the hospital for quite a while, uh, and the prognosis wasn't particularly good. But he did start to improve, and when he did, the doctors went ahead and sent him home with explicit instructions to rest and relax, something Hen found difficult to do. Here was a man always on the go, always creating, always living life, and now he was stuck, resting, and likely wondering and worrying, would he ever be able to do magic again? It was all too much for him. On New Year's Day, 1961, Hen Fetch had another heart attack. An ambulance came to his home and took him to the hospital. The doctors worked on him, doing all they could to save his life. But Henry Nicholas Fetch died at noon on New Year's Day. He was only 48 years old. Touching tributes came from all over the magic world. Maybe the most touching was from Gene Gordon, who wrote, Dear Hen, they tell me you're no longer with us, boy. But I've decided not to believe it. It just can't be true. When I received the sad news, I never felt worse in my life. You died New Year's morning. And there will never be another happy New Year's Day for me. A bit later, he mentions when he first met, uh, or when they first met in the early 30s, when Hen was just a teen, he goes on, Hen, we never met again until Boston, 1951, at a convention. And then the last time I saw you was, oddly enough, in Boston in, at the 1960 convention. Little did we know as we went out every night to eat when my booth was closed, that we would never have the chance again. Little do we know anything ahead, and it is just as well. When we met in 1951, something clicked, and we were pals from then on. It's a very long letter, but it shows the love between these two people, Hen, who always called Gene Gordon dad, and Gene, who always called him boy. That letter, by the way, is published in its entirety in the book Fetching Magic. 
sadly a book that's out of print. But as with most magic books, I'm sure if you search, you can find it just to maybe look on eBay or one of the um, Facebook magic uh, collector boards and um, maybe you can locate it. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book and the creations in there. Oh man, just unbelievable. So here we have a man who made an indelible mark on the world of magic, not by his performing, but by his creations. His ideas and concepts are still fantastic and worth checking out for the performer who wants some unique and amazing material today. Long live Henfetch and all those like him who give so much to the world of magic. And that, my friends, is going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you like the episode, please give it a like or a five-star review or a plus mark or whatever way your provider will allow. I know some podcasting services have removed that feature, unfortunately. But if you can do it, um, hey, I would greatly appreciate it. And by the way, the winner of the first Magic Detective t-shirt uh, contest has been chosen. Thank you for everybody that submitted. I have not contacted uh, the winner yet, so um, I'll do that shortly. Next time, uh, next podcast, I'll reveal who the winner was. Until then, I am Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thank you for listening. Please be well and stay safe.